Hello, patrons and podcast land. Chris here with another episode of the Make It Podcast. And this week, we have a treat for you. We have writer, director, Maki Dapp making his second appearance on the podcast. You know, the first time he was on the show, we really leaned on him for advice. This time, we get deep into the origin story, how he fell in love with filmmaking, how he got into the creative life. And of course, we talk about his new film, Another Version of You, which is available now for all of you to purchase and stream uh, on demand, uh, digital download. You can buy it at Target.com, Walmart.com, Best Buy.com, Amazon.com. You can certainly watch it on iTunes. I have my copy on Blu-ray. I like watching it in that immersive in that immersive sound rather and um, and feel. Uh, but but do you do you just make sure you support independent film? I think you'll love it. Um, it stars Chris Winty, Sarah Antonio, C.J. Perry, and the late great Brittany Belland. Uh, produced by uh, podcast guests and and friends of the podcast, David Perry and Ryan Hartsock, and shot by the Wonderkin himself, Micah Sims, who we hope to have on this podcast very soon. So. Without further ado, I give you the one and only and probably most mentioned person on this podcast by our guest, Maki Dapp. You're listening to Make It, a podcast by Bonsai Creative that helps aspiring professionals in film get where they're going faster by dissecting the advice knowledge and insights of professional creatives in the film industry. I'm your host, Chris Barkley. Hi, I'm Maki Dapp. I'm a writer and a director currently based out of Nashville, Tennessee, considering relocating to possibly another planet, but uh, staying here for the time being. Uh, You may know me from the feature film Another Version of You, which just recently released into the world on Blu-ray, digital, on demand, all over the place. Uh, And I hope that you will pick that up, not just for my sake, but for the sake of everybody who put their blood, sweat and tears into that film. And I'm currently working on trying to get more films made as well as pay the bills by doing some commercials. I'm working on some screenplays right now, trying to get those off the ground. Um, I've got some screenplays that have been optioned by producers. We're trying to get those made, Uh, just trying to get some traction in this crazy world we call the film industry. Maki Depp, welcome back to the Make It Podcast. Thank you. So glad to be here. We're glad to have you, man. Like this is, um, I know you know this, but this has been a long time coming. And uh, since the last time you've been on, so, so, so much has transpired. It's It's been, it feels like a lifetime ago since we spoke on this podcast, does it not? Hundreds of years. <laughs> Hundreds. That's not true. That's not true. The internet, the internet is only like what five years old or something. I don't even know. 
I don't even know what's happening. Well, I'll text Al Gore and we'll find out how old it is. Al Gore. He knows. He knows the truth. He knows he has, (laughs) he knows where Hoff is buried. Uh, (laughs) I did listen back to that first conversation and realized that in in our conversation, we didn't really touch on, uh, and everyone, by the way, side note, tangent, this is what I'm great at. Uh, Side note is all movie lovers are into origin stories these days. And, and I realized that we didn't get the origin story of Maki Depp in that first interview. Really? We didn't. And so, uh, exactly. And I would love, if you will, to start there. And okay. I, I, I kind of want to know what was, I don't think we've ever even spoken about this, but what was the moment uh, in your childhood uh where you just, if you look, if you think back on it, that moment in your childhood where you kind of knew you were going to lead a creative life. Mm, wow. All right. Let me. Did you, uh, and did you have a beard when you were eight? I didn't, you know, so many stories. Let me, I'm going to take you back, Chris. You ready for this? I'm ready. So when I was young, and I think you and I have this, this, quasi shared past to some extent. But when I was younger, I, I just loved music. I still love music. Music is the foundation of so many things in my life. And when I was in fourth grade, I auditioned for the bully in the school Christmas play. Um, I was a very small, scrawny kid, but I liked the songs that the bully sang. His name was Toad or something like that. <laughs> and I wanted to, I wanted to be that. And my music teacher said, "Hey, will you will you audition for the lead?" And I went, "Oh, sure." And so she played the little she played the little thing, and I sang I sang it. And I was a fourth grader, and and my elementary school went to fifth grade, and so that I knew there was a bunch of fifth graders auditioning for the lead. And I got it. I got the lead. Mm-hmm. And, I, you know, a lot of fifth graders threatened to beat me up and, you know, all that whole thing. <laughs> but, um, but I ended up, you know, doing the lead. I had a couple solos in the, in the musical. I was in every scene. Um, and that was a really interesting point because that led me into, you know, uh, doing more choir stuff. Um, I moved around a lot as a kid. And... When I moved to Tennessee, I was just, I was in choir. That was what I was doing. I was skateboarding. And so my life was girls, choir, and skateboarding. Those were, those were my three pillars, if you will. And, but I just loved music and I, and I wanted to be a singer and I wanted to be in a rock band. And all of my friends were in the marching band. Matter of fact, all of my friends were in, for the most part, were in the drum line of the marching band. And after a few years of, of doing show choir and all these things, I decided I'm going to quit, quit doing show choir and I'm going to learn how to play the drums uh, and, and join the marching band. Simultaneously, I also learned how to play guitar and bass guitar and started fronting rock bands and playing bass and rock bands. And so that was my, my foundation was music. I just wanted to be a musician. That's all I wanted to do. But I knew that it was not a realistic goal to be a musician and potentially make a living out of it. So I was, you know, I was just, 
realistic in my expectations. So I also love telling stories and that was my big thing. And I, and I actually went to, to college and eventually became a, a English major, creative writing major. And cause I was like, I can tell stories. I can tell stories in books or short form or, uh, or songs. There was all sorts of ways to tell stories. And that was kind of my path. Um, simultaneously, I'm going to go back. I'm going to, I'm going to step back for a second. When I was, I grew up in Colorado and in Colorado, in the county that I lived in, there was, you did not have to go to school on Mondays. That was the, the gift of this particular county because there were three ski areas in the county. And they wanted the students to be able to ski because we were in this, like, <laughs> it was, it was a very poor County, but rich in ski areas and rich in tourism and things like that. And so, you know, we were barely scraping by as a family, but I could ski for free at, at three different ski areas in, in the County. And so I grew up on the slopes. That was my thing. Like my dad would drop me off, uh, to go skiing on Mondays, drop me off at eight, pick me up at five, hand me, you know, a five spot to buy some lunch. And that was the day that was my Mondays. Wow. And during when the ski season was not in, there was this single theater, like it was in the middle of this really, really small town in Colorado. There was a single theater. And on Monday afternoons, when there was no skiing, they played a Monday afternoon matinee. And every Monday that it was open, I didn't care what was playing. I was at that theater. I was there. It was one buck and you got to watch a movie. And that was, that was my life. And I loved it. I mean, I, I just loved it. And that actually sounds like it belongs in one of your films. I know. I know. I've thought about how to, how to turn that into a movie, but uh, it hasn't happened yet. Um, Super 8 though, kind of captured some of that magic. Um, you know, when I was watching it, I, it felt kind of like uh, where I grew up a little bit. But What's the name of the county? Uh, it was Grand County. Grand <laughs> that, County. That couldn't be written. That couldn't be more perfect. <laughs> you can't write this. You can't write this for sure. <laughs> Grand so, County. So, so I go to I go to high school. I go to college. I, I'm, I love English. I'm, I'm good at telling stories. I'm good at writing stories. I was a, I was a dungeon master, uh, you know, uh, playing Dungeons and Dragons as a kid. So I, I love the, the crafting of the story. Um, but I just, I always went to movies all through high school, all through college. I loved going to movies, but I never, ever considered it as a thing I could do. I just never, it never crossed my mind because I was so focused on being a musician and then, I actually picked up graphic design because I knew I could do graphic design on the side while I was trying to do the the side hustle of trying to be in a rock band. But you and, you, you went to University of Tennessee, correct? Correct. Yep. So how did you find University of Tennessee from Grand County, Colorado? Well, so so I moved I moved to Tennessee in seventh grade. Oh, got it. Yeah, yeah. And so I, when I got in a marching band, it's like, what's the best marching band? In the state of Tennessee, oh, it's probably the University of Tennessee, the the pride of the Southland. I should I should probably go to Tennessee, um, but the thing was I couldn't read music. What I could do was I could watch other people play the drum licks and I could copy them. 
Mm-hmm. But with in college, you had to learn a new show every week, and uh, that just wasn't enough time for me to to figure that out. And so I just I played symbols, and it wasn't very fulfilling. And I ended up <laughs> only doing it for one year. But <laughs> but uh, but I was I was really heavy into playing bass and writing music and just trying to be in bands. And so when, when I moved to Nashville right out of college. Uh, n- not necessarily coming here to chase the dream, but it was the it was a better music scene than Knoxville. So uh, moved here to to just try to get, figure out what was going on. Picked up graphic design, uh, and actually, it's funny. I actually picked up uh, web animation was kind of my way into graphic design, and web animation to some extent is a lot like editing video, which I didn't know at the time. Mm-hmm. So I can see all these things that built up uh, into to getting me this to, to where I am. So I'm gonna I'm gonna get close. I'm gonna try to wrap this thing up quick because this has been very long winded. Hey, you're fine. You're fine. <laughs> so when I was at this graphic design firm, one of my buddies, whose dad wrote, uh, co-wrote, and directed the Ernest films, like Ernest Goes to Camp. Mm-hmm. Uh, Ernest in the Army, all these. My buddy, uh, his dad was the guy who did those. And and he was doing these things called the 48-Hour Film Project. And I saw a couple of them and I was like, that's amazing. You do that in two days? Oh, my gosh, that'd be so much fun. And so in 2007, I decided I was going to do one. And so I directed my first film in 2007 just as a kind of like, hey, wouldn't this be fun to do this? And I loved it. And then I began it. I did it again in 2008. I did it again in 2009. In 2009, we won best film. I had no idea what that meant. I had no idea what was going on. 2010, I met Ryan Hartsock, and uh, he brought a bunch of people down from Cincinnati, including Micah Sims. That was the first time I worked with him. Was in 2010, and. Uh, our film got second place that year, but that was the year that I was like, oh, wait a minute. I can do movies more than just once a year at the 48-Hour Film Project. And from summer of 2010 to summer of 2011, I made seven films, including my first feature film. And so I that year is my what I consider my film school. Yeah, and because that was the one of the questions I had, which was, and so going back to 2007... You still have these aspirations to be a musician. You're working as a graphic mm. artist to pay the bills. Hold on, hold on. No, 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 hold on. In 2005, my dreams of being, 2005, 2006, my dreams of being in a rock band died. And so what, what, ki- kind of what killed, what killed that dream? Playing in empty clubs night after night after night. I mean, being in a band is so much like being in a movie or being a filmmaker because, uh, if you don't have a crowd outside of your fan base, um, then you're relying on your friends and family to come out. And eventually they all stop coming out because they're tired of coming and seeing you play the same 10 songs or seven songs or four songs. And eventually I just ran, I just burned through every, and I couldn't get traction. It's the same thing with filmmakers, right? If you can't build your fan base outside of just that really small group, eventually you're going to peter out. It doesn't matter how good your songs are, or how good your movies are. You have to find a way to expand your fan base. 
And I think that's one of the biggest struggles as an independent artist, not just a filmmaker, but as an illustrator or a a web web comic or whatever it is, is finding a way to get a fan base. And so I I totally agree with that. I've I've had similar thoughts and moments in in my life as a creative. Um, When I had my singing group, I think we we were doing a good job. But then when the group actually broke up, there was, so I think deep down in every person's soul, they know who they really, really, really are. Mm. And deep, deep, deep down in my soul, I didn't feel like I had the singing talent that would allow, I didn't have the singing talent that, that could support someone paying to watch that every single mm. night. And then, but, but that's subconsciously. Right. Consciously, I'm like, well, there's other people who I seem probably just as good as like there's Billy Corgan. There's there's Keith Sweat. There's like there's all these people who have had lifelong careers. And so you you never know which one's true. Is it your subconscious or your conscious? But if your subconscious believes something wholeheartedly based on your own taste and upbringing, your conscious, I don't think, can overcome it. Now, Mm -hmm. subconsciously, my um, I was also uh, being sort of whispered to um, through my subconscious that I did have writing talent that mm. was worthy of being paid. Which is what Billy Corgan has, right? Exactly. So yeah. Billy Corgan's a better writer than singer, and therefore he ends up being the vehicle for his songs mm. um, a lot of the time. But it's really his writing that really, mm. his writing in the mid-90s was, I, I, I haven't, in the, you know, it's arguably the best in music history for that, for such a small, you know, that time span, I'd say between 91 and 96, but, but it's not that he's gotten any worse. It's just that um, sometimes you just hit it right when it needs to hit. You know what I mean? Um, It's like rock hasn't necessarily gotten worse. It's just that the tastes have changed. And so rock has to kind of change with it, for example. And right now it's like, it's a different time. It's a different era, Um, which is funny. I even bring that up because I think, with what's going on politically, rock has a really nice platform now if it wants to explode on that. But, but no, I I totally get that. I I guess my question from there then is, is you say, okay, tired of playing for empty clubs um, and, and, and things like that. Um, And and I can relate to that. I remember us going on stage Mm -hmm. and, and our, and our venues wouldn't be empty, but we would get like little, like playing R and B songs in, Mm -hmm. in the heart of Tennessee you mm-hmm. get people who like are beatboxing as you like walk up on stage and nice. you're like, Oh fuck you. And then you <laughs> hit them with the harmony and they're like, Oh, these guys are singing four part harmony. They're super talented. So nice. I, I, like I deeply feel that I could have done more with my group, but then when that was yeah. over, it was kind of like, mm, let's try to write. So, yeah. but, but, but the thing is, the thing that's interesting about you is, is you left that and then you made a film in 2007, but I would say what keeps most people from doing that Maki is that yeah. they would be like, well, where do I start? I don't even know what to do if I pick up a camera. So how did you well, even know what to do? Yeah. So to, to so, even make a film in 2007. Well, so here was the weird thing. Um, the, the, the 2005 to 2007 was this really crazy weird transition for me because I'm, I'm now I've dedicated my entire life to music and now I've given up on music 
web design was not feeding that creative fire that, that I had. So I was like, okay, I got to try something. I got to try a couple things. So I started painting. I painted a ton of paintings. I actually sold paintings. I was in art galleries. Like I was painting like crazy. It was nuts. Um, from 2005 to 2007, I, I wrote three novels from 2005 ish to 2011. And I, I wrote three novels. One of them was called Staple to the Fabric of the Universe, which ended up becoming another version of you. Mm-hmm. So um, that was that I was I was exploring. I was just kind of this. I knew I wanted to be creative, but I was no longer being fulfilled playing music, even though I still desperately loved music. And so when I had the opportunity to direct a film, I had seen so many movies, but I had no idea what a director really did. I honestly didn't. I didn't know what a first AD did. I didn't know the difference really between a director and a producer. All I knew is that the director kind of had the creative vision, sort of. That was, you know, I knew what Spielberg and Kubrick and Lucas and I kind of, you know, I I followed all these filmmakers, but, you know, back in 2007, that was before social media was was really doing anything and so yeah i mean i i had no idea what i was doing so i had a buddy who was a who owned a camera and he said he would be the dp and the editor and i said cool i'll be i'll co-write with someone and i will direct and we just kind of made it up honestly <laughs> we just made it up like we just we just made a movie and you know what? It wasn't terrible. It was not for a first film. It was not awful, which I'm shocked. And I think if it had been awful, I probably would have said, well, that was fun, but I'm done. Right. It was just good enough, right? Yeah. It was like, you know what? For a first film, it was kind of like a Twilight Zone episode, you know, and it kind of, and I love Twilight Zone. So, and it worked and we had, and here's the thing I'm going to, I'm going to, I'm going to give credit to good acting because I think so often when young filmmakers are trying to figure out who they are, what they're doing, if you cannot find good actors, good actors can, can make or break everything, right? We all know this as, as filmmakers, but as a first time filmmaker to have two or three really good actors mm-hmm. that somehow got on your team, is mind blowing because because of that, um, the like the, the acting saved a lot of and covered up a lot of our immaturity and uh, our n- lack of knowing what the heck we were doing. Yeah, it's there's no question about it. It's funny. I, I can't really put my finger on why someone is is better than someone else from from performance to performance, but. You sure do see it on the screen. I mean, it just it it sh- it shows up. Um, just <laughs> it's kind of like how we knew. This my favorite example is that that I called that Ryan Reynolds was going to be the next superstar after I saw Van Wilder. <clears throat> and so this is National Lampoon's Van Wilder. It was universally panned at the time, which currently it's a cult. It's a comedy cult classic. Right. But at the time, it was universally panned. Uh, this is like one of these like 20s and 15s on Metacritic. 
And I watched Van Wilder and I thought to myself, Ryan, this, this, whoever this, I didn't know who Ryan Reynolds was. I was like, that fucking guy is (laughs) undeniable. Like he's funny. Like I buy him as funny. I buy him as the sex interest, like the, like the, the romance interest. Like I buy, like I buy him 100%. And I actually thought Cal Penn was great in it too. And like, you look at that movie and basically everybody succeeded from that except for Tara Reid. And at the mm-hmm. time when the movie came out, uh, uh, Tara Reid or Tara Reid was the star of the movie. She was the reason sure. people would show up and watch it, right? Yep. And he completely stole the show. I think another example is Adam Driver in Girls. Like he just he just jumps out at you. Like you you mm-hmm. want to see him in every episode. Like mm-hmm. please write him in to more stuff because we need to see him. He's Really, 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 really good, right? And but you don't know why. Like, why is he better than some other supporting character uh, in some other show? Right? You just yeah. know. You it's just, yeah, Chris. It is what I call, and and when I was teaching, and when I talk to anybody, it's what I call the thing. And, and <laughs> you cannot not the movie, is, the thing, not Jennifer Bowers, no, the thing. Is, yeah, it is intangible. Like when people have the thing, it doesn't matter, you know, Steve Jobs and Bill Gates had the thing, you know, there are people out there that just have this, it's magic is what it is. That's all. That's the only thing I can say it is it's magic. And when they have it and there's different degrees, right? Like Michael Jordan and and LeBron James have the thing, but anybody who's in the NBA has the thing, let's be honest. Right. Mm -hmm. Yep. Or anybody who's in the NFL has the thing. There's just some people who really have the thing, right? Yes. And and that's Ryan Reynolds. That's Brad Pitt. That you know Leonardo DiCaprio, uh, uh, Jennifer Connelly. There there are people out there in the acting world who have it, and it just it doesn't matter. Even if they're not great, there's always something that draws you in to them, and it's and yeah. I can't, nobody can explain it. It just is what it is. And what, you know, you know, you look at the Lord of the Rings and um, yes, was Elijah Wood great in Lord of the Rings? Of course he was. Sure. But people didn't go see Lord of the Rings because of Elijah Wood. Mm -hmm. It just so happened that he was great in the role. Um, But there are some movies and some things out there that's like, oh, so-and-so's in this movie. I'm going to go see it. And you're thinking esoterically because they have this thing that I cannot not watch. And yeah. that, that is, it's inexplicable, honestly. Yeah. It's so interesting. It's uh, I'm reminded of billions, how before it was like a runaway hit on HBO. Um, it felt like, it felt like you were coming to watch it because you were curious about Kieran Culkin. Mm. You know? Or, or uh, not billions. I said billions, but I meant because um, billions is um, uh, billions is Showtime. I meant um, uh, I'm losing my mind. Um, right, Karen Colvin show. What is that? Um, it's the um, how am I losing this? Succession. Succession. Yeah, Jesus. It's just like it was literally on tip of my mind. But anyway, yeah. So before Succession, because I think Billions was going to be a runaway hit, period, because it had Paul Giamatti in it and it had Brian Koppelman behind it. Like it was just it was just going to be what it was going to be. You know what I mean? 
Um, mm-hmm. But but Succession, you weren't sure because you don't. It was like written by a UK comedic actor and writer. Uh, a lot of actors are from the UK. We don't know their names, so you're 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 curious about Karen Culkin, and then you get there and you sort of find out about like Matthew McFadden, and you and you find out about most poignantly to me Jeremy Strong. Jeremy Strong is a great, like, like I show up every week for Jeremy Strong. Like he's a great actor. Uh, what he does without words is phenomenal. Anybody that, that acts that's listening to this, you have to watch Jeremy Strong in succession. Uh, the heartbreak, the disappointment, the anger, the, the passive aggressive, all the stuff he does with just his eyes and his face muscles uh, blows me away. Um, highly, 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 highly recommended. Um, I mean, it's such a gift to, to see those. I mean, it's the reason that Tarantino wanted to film Brad Pitt driving around Hollywood for 10 minutes yeah, yeah. and actually keep it in the film. Now I, you know, as a filmmaker, I get, you know, it felt a little gratuitous when I say a little, I mean a lot, but at the same time, you it's Brad Pitt and Brad Pitt has the thing and you just watch him like, yeah. And you're just like, Oh, and it's him and it's him in a t-shirt with the sun on him in a, in a, in a nice car. And it's, and I found it fascinating and entertaining just to watch it. I have a, it's, it's once upon a time in Hollywood is the cyber truck of movies. (laughs) It is 100% polarizing. Half the people, uh, I know hated it and thought it was boring. And the other half thought it was brilliant. It should be movie of the year. I'm in that latter half. Um, I just kind of get it. Like I know I'm going in watching a Tarantino movie. It's like when I go watch a Woody Allen movie. So when people like, like lean over to me and be like, uh, there's a lot of talking in this movie. I'm like, dude, it's a Woody Allen movie. Stop it. Or, or when you just get sort of esoteric shots from a, uh, um, who's the dude you hate Maki. Uh, <laughs> well, you don't hate him, but you don't think he's a good storyteller. Um, he did oh, uh, line. Zach Schneider. No, no, no. Oh, no, you're Terrence Malick. Terrence Malick, yeah. So if oh, you go Terrence, to Terrence, if, Terrence if you go to, Malick, he's he... <laughs> But if you go watch a Terrence Malick movie, you kind of know. You have to kind of know you're not going to see a normal movie today. Yeah, and that's the thing. And here's the thing. I, I want to say this because I may not love Terrence Malick. But I can respect what he does. He has a very specific thing that he does. Mm-hmm. And as long as he's able to convince studios and cast and crews to come along with him, who am I? You know, I mean, I I honestly, I cannot stand Woody Allen. <laughs> I, I, That's okay. I... I have only watched one of his films all the way through. Every other film that I've tried to watch, I've turned off. Which which one did you make it through? I the, made the it. Owen through. Wilson one. No, the golf, the the tennis one. Uh, Scarlett, jo- yeah, Scarlett. Jo- was it Scarlett yeah. Johansson? Yeah, and I don't I don't even remember it. I just watched it. Um, but when I was watching Midnight Paris, I'm watching this film and I'm going, this should be a home run. I love Owen Wilson. Rachel McAdams is one of my favorite actors out there. I 
I turned it off halfway through and I was, I was fuming angry. I was <laughs> angry. It's like, how do you mess up a really cool, fun time travel idea with this amazing cast? Well, let me tell you how. You, you turn Rachel McAdams into a cardboard paper robot and you make her, you know, a, a, a horrible human being, which is the exact opposite of who she is. And she's not even convincing at it because that's not who she is. Like that to me is yeah. Anyway, I don't want to go off on Woody Allen. You know? and, <laughs> and, and then did, of course, did you like Annie Hall? I, I couldn't. I I watched like thirty minutes of it and I turned it off. I couldn't. I couldn't. I was I was done. <laughs> I just didn't get it. I was tired of watching this person whine. I don't know. It was just weird. Yeah. <laughs> I, it's one of those things that I have a really hard time figuring out. You know, there's certain things, there's certain things in the zeitgeist. Um, I'm also going to put someone like, uh, um, I can't think, there's a musician, there's a few musicians out there that people just for whatever reason love, 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 and I just don't get it. And it's fine because there's a lot of people out there that don't get Radiohead, and I kind of really like Radiohead, you know? So um, that's the beauty of art. That's the thing that I keep, what I'm trying to retune myself as an artist uh, because, you know, as we've released another version of you out into the world, we've got these these really dark and terrible reviews out there. And I see it with every film that's out there. People just want to set things on fire for whatever reason. And I'm trying to curb that. You know, if I have a really intimate and, conversation. And, and, and not to cut you off, but I just want to mention yeah. that we have, critically speaking, all great reviews. And there are sure. so many... There are a lot more great reviews than dark ones, but for yeah. the dark reviews, go ahead. Yeah, no, I, and we're getting great critical. Re- I mean, our, our critic reviews, we've not had a single bad one, which has been amazing. And I've been very thankful for that. Exactly. But yeah. for the, j- there's just people out there that just want to set everything on fire and they're like, they want to be contrarians or they want to be, I'm going to be the one person to shit on this film, even though everybody else loves it, or whatever it is. And I, I'm trying to curb that. I, I'm trying. I, I'm trying to approach things to say, listen. Not every single piece of art that's out there is for me, and not every single piece of art that's out there is for you. But there are pieces of art that are out there that are going to connect with people that I cannot, that my my art will not connect with, and that is beautiful, and I love that, and I don't. I, I'm trying to get to the point where I am not tearing down any artist. I'm just saying their art does not connect with me. And I'm sure there are people out there who connect deeply with this. And I'm glad that that art exists. Um, and, you know, that's the kind of attitude I'm trying to take these days because it, as artists, we need to be supporting each other, even if we don't love each other's art. And I think I, I believe that through and through and I'm now trying to exercise that in how I talk. And, and it's tough sometimes because we're all very uh, polarizing and we're very political and we're very um, I'm right and you're wrong. And, and I'm trying to go, no, but listen, there isn't a bigger there's something bigger out there uh, in the art world, especially where we have to say, hey, art hits on so many different levels and it's OK if that art doesn't hit with you. You can still support it. You can say, hey, this is not my kind of movie, but I know there are people out there who are going to love this film and it might be you and you should take a look. 
And that's a really interesting and nice segue to, and a, and a lot to dig into, by the way, uh, to, to my next question, which is, you know, this process to shoot and release another version of you happened over many, many years. And there were a lot of experiences uh, along the way. And I'm curious, what belief did you have or, or what did you believe before you shot another version of you? that was either verified or debunked after you completed uh, this feature? Wow. You know, I'm going to count myself lucky in how my, my film career has unfolded because I feel one of the reasons that I choose to make films rather than writing novels is because I love the team aspect of of filmmaking. It's one of my favorite things. Do I like sitting in a quiet place and and creating worlds? Yeah, that's great. But, excuse me, but uh, I love collaboration. And so throughout the years, in every film that I've been in, every film that I've been involved in and, and, and written or directed or both, I've encountered these creative collaborators who take these raw ideas that me or a small writing team has put together and they bring them to life in magical ways, whether it be through cinematography, production design, wardrobe, acting, color, uh, whatever, how, you know, organization, all these different things, um, editing music, all of these things are, are the beauty of what I love about filmmaking. And so I, I guess I went into making another version of you with that same attitude that we're going to catch magic and we're going to somehow turn the magic into something that people are going to want to watch. What I didn't think about was how are we necessarily going to do that? That's, uh, that's what David Perry and Ryan Hartsock, you know, the three of us would talk, okay, Hey, we've got these really cool up and coming actors who not a lot of people know. Let's get some people who maybe can move the needle, which is one of the reasons we brought on CJ Perry is, you know, we need people to have fan bases and, and, and this and that. But at the same time, my whole thing was like, let's just bring really great people on and, and hopefully people will find this. Honestly, I didn't really think a ton about what I'm calling the fourth phase of filmmaking. Because so often as filmmakers, especially independent filmmakers, we talk, we think about the three phases of filmmaking, pre-production, writing and pre-production, production production and post-production. So we're always thinking about these because when you make a short film, that's really all that matters. Do you have a good script? Are you prepared? Did you shoot it and get all the stuff you wanted to get? And are the people in post happy because you got all the stuff that you shot or are they angry at you because you didn't get everything that you needed to cut together a good film? So now we have this fourth dimension, which is distribution and trying to make return on investment. And it is for a lot of independent filmmakers, 
we don't get to get to this point very often. And it is because even if we're making music videos or commercials to kind of pay the bills, we there's not a return on investment necessarily. Like you make the thing and then they put it out and you hope it gets a lot of views and you hope if you're making a commercial that uh, it sticks in, in the zeitgeist and it sticks in people's heads and they maybe go and buy the thing and then the client's really happy and they ask you to come back and direct something else or make something else. So with independent film, we now have this opportunity with another version of you to say, hey, can we make money on something that doesn't have crazy, super famous actors in it that was made on a modest budget that we worked on relentlessly for four years, which in full honesty and transparency is probably two years too long. Like we should have, we should have found a way, you know, in a, in a perfect world, we should have found a way to make this thing in a year, year and a half, but that's not how the cards uh, were laid out for us and we did the best that we could. And so, you know, I, I, here's what I've learned and this, this will be, <laughs> I, I don't even know, but this is, this is my goal. And, and I, and Chris, you, I believe you and I have talked about this offline before my goal in life as a filmmaker right now, where I am, I've made, close to 25 films in my life. And the only way I can level up and go to the next place, I believe, and I could be wrong and I would be love to be proven wrong. But I think at this point where I am, I need someone who is more seasoned, who has done this before, who has been successful to come in and lift me up into the next level. Uh, and I think that's either a studio or a producer or a, or a team or a production company or whatever it is, uh, who is, who has said, you know what, because what happens in independent filmmaker, especially if, uh, you know, if you're new to this and you're trying to figure out what you're doing, um, wow, I totally just lost my train of thought. You were uh, going on uh, having someone lift you up into the next. So, oh, okay. So, so repeatedly in this process of finishing up another version of you, me and the other producers and the executive producers, uh, to some extent, we've all found ourselves getting to a spot where we're like, we think this is the best way to move forward. We think this is the best decision. We think we should maybe do this but we don't know. We cannot find data. We cannot find experience to say, Hey, this is probably the best decision. And I think that is what wisdom and experience brings. And I, I have a lot of wisdom and experience because I've made 25 ish films plus countless commercials and whatever. Right. Mm -hmm. But, but when you get to distribution, it is such a different creature. And we knew going in the distribution was going to hands down be the most difficult part. And it was, and it is, uh, to navigate those waters in the independent world. Uh, countless times people said, Hey, wow, we really like your film. There's really nobody in it. 
that people know. And so there's not a whole lot we can do with it, even though we really like it. Um, and it's not a pure genre film. It's not a horror film. Mm-hmm. So, you know, next time you might want to consider either making a genre film or getting somebody famous or quasi famous attached. So we but can you, do something. But you, but you know, when I hear that, um, I, I'm not saying that I'm not discounting the, the fact that it could be true, but I always look at it and, and I've, God, in my experience, I would say half of that is they're talking to you about their limitations. So a lot of times we translate that in here. Oh, these are the limitations of my film. When in reality, mm-hmm. that individual we're talking to, their business model has a limitation that won't allow this film or for them to take on the, this film in the way it needs to be taken on. Um, because you can't tell me that uh, call me by uh, your name uh, <laughs> meets the criteria of having someone we all know in it and, you know, all these other things. No, but that's not true. I mean, call me by your name had, Tim Chalamet, who was in Lady yep. Bird, and nobody, no one knows who he is right now. So only people in film and in maybe the LGBTQ community know that name. He is a incredible actor, but the name he got, he got from that movie. So well, before that movie was being made Bird. and being purchased. But but think about it. The, think about it pre-distribution, though. Not sure. not. It's easy to go back and say, okay, this was the result. So therefore, okay. they were but right. Army Hammer. I mean, Army Hammer was has been in. Uh, you know, he was in Man from Uncle, and he was in well, the Social Network. Stuff, yeah. yeah. I mean, it's it's not like they're they're no names. You know, it's not like they're people that we've never heard of. I mean. Uh, Call Me By Your Name came out after Lady Bird. Lady Bird was Oscar nominated, you know, and correct. I mean, there was there was buzz. So I mean, yes, there was some Call buzz. Uh, but 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 the point I think the bigger point here, the, and the real truth is, sure. is that someone, and this is to your point actually, someone invested in that movie and those people, and said we're going all the way. And here's how much money we're going to put behind it. And, and therefore you, you get the outcome that you get. Um, and we see this from time, like Jonah Hill, people had been talking about Jonah Hill for two years before he was in super bad. So somebody decided that they were going to trust the word of somebody else that was already big and said, no, you gotta, you gotta trust me. Like, like Jonah Hill is going to be the biggest star in the, in the world in a couple of years. Mm-hmm. And then they went and invested in, putting him in a movie, right? Because Judd Apatow could have put anyone in the movie. He didn't have to put Jonah Hill in the movie. Sure, yeah. So that's that's what I mean. Like, to your point, I think somebody has to recognize your talent and then Mm. deeply invest in it uh, with a long-term plan to keep feeding the beast, so to speak. Yeah. Yeah, I I mean, yeah. So to to kind of come, try to come full circle on this is, Distribution is just a different thing, and I think for those people who have had at least some success, and sometimes it's people who have made one film, right? I mean, there mm-hmm. are people out there who made one film, and then they were able to go on and make a Hollywood, big Hollywood film, right? And I'm not saying making a big Hollywood film is the be-all, end-all of what all of us are trying to do, but what we are trying to do is – make a living doing our art, 
Mm-hmm. And I, I would love for somebody to prove me wrong 100%. But where I am now, I, I don't know many people who are able to, at least as a, a director, writer, producer, that are able to make a living as a filmmaker without breaking into a new level somehow, or they're making, you know, five films a year somehow, and they're all genre pieces and they're, uh, you know, uh, whatever, right. There's, there's a, there was a director a few years ago who made seven films in one year and that happens. And I'm sure that's, you know, you have a crew of 10 people and you find a way to basically do 48 hour film project versions of a bunch of mumblecore films. And I know that's possible, but that's not who I am as a filmmaker. And so I'm just trying to figure out, you know, as a lot of us who listen to this podcast, we're all trying to figure out how do, how do we take the next step? And, and that's something that weighs on me. And I think about quite a bit, you and I, Chris have had countless conversations about it. Yes. And, um, and I think really the answer is you, you have to be recognized by somebody who has done it before, who knows, Hey, if we get this person, we can really target in this area and we can do this and we can bring on this other person because this person likes this person and they've been in those trenches before and they kind of are seasoned. Mm-hmm. And I think that is that is the, the key to leveling up. But you also have to make really good stuff in order to get to the point where somebody recognizes you and is willing to say, hey, come up here. Let me help you. You know, and, and it happened to. You know, there, we can we can look at the the list. We can look at Colin Trevorrow, who made Safety Not Guaranteed, and they saw him and they were like, "Wow, he made this film that was a million dollars." But you you look at Safety Not Guaranteed, and you're like, "Yeah, but it had, uh, you know, it <laughs> it had a great cast. Like there yeah. was this great cast in that thing. So it's not like it was just this kind of no name film, like you know, Beast of the Southern Wild, that nobody knew who any of the people were. That's kind of an anomaly." Um, but the the director from Beast of the Southern Wild, who was that? You know, who's off the top of your head? Not off the top of my head. Um, I'm but, curious. But I, but I, I love the movie. I, yeah, but what have um, you know? I'm trying to figure out. Uh, ben Zeitlin. Mm-hmm. 2012 has not made another film since 2012 as a director. Hmm. Uh, they have completed a film called Wendy that comes out 2020. So eight years between Beast of the Southern Wild and Wendy coming out. And it's, and I don't even know what Wendy is, you know? And so uh, it's not everybody gets the Colin Trevorrow treatment, you know, not everybody gets the, uh, the, you know, you look at, and I'm so happy. I'm so happy for Greta and for Olivia uh, two actresses who have, or actors uh, that happen to be female, who have come from this world, who have been on countless sets, and then boom, they get an opportunity to direct a film, and they knock it out of the park, mm-hmm. and they, you know, and that's amazing, and and uh, and we're also seeing it also with uh, Elizabeth um, uh, Banks, Charlotte's Angels. Who is it? Elizabeth Banks. Elizabeth Banks, right? Yep. So she has. She just got greenlit another film. What this week? You know. So um, that's cool. You know, yes. and uh, and it, and I'm I'm so happy to see those things. But but those 
those people do not come from the indie filmmaking world necessarily. They may have started there like all of us, but they have been in the system for a while and they got an opportunity. And so now what we're talking about is this, this dichotomy between people who have been in the industry and get a break. You know, you hear about the stories all the time in film or in, in, in TV where an actor uh, like a Jason Bateman gets an opportunity to direct an episode of Ozark. And then all of a sudden now they're directing a lot because they did it because they've, mm-hmm. they've, they've been seasoned and grown up in that world and they totally understand how it works. When you're not in that world as an independent filmmaker and you're on the outside and you you're used to working with crews of anywhere from five to 30 people, it's not the same as working on a hundred person crew and as a director knowing how to navigate all of those different pitfalls and snares and things. Uh, and you need someone, a producer to come along, I think, and say, Hey, let's level you up. And I'm going to be here to walk beside you. And if you're about to do something kind of stupid, uh, I'm going to gently nudge you in the right direction. Yeah, I think I think there's some real validity validity to to that thinking, and I think also it's market based. Um, would be my second thought, which is um, you read about independent artists of all types really thriving and succeeding in bigger markets, so in L.A. or in New York or in Chicago, um, but I haven't seen it consistently in Nashville yet. And so that might be a larger problem for Nashville as a filmmaking community as a whole to try to tackle. Um, and I think the third thing is, is that every case is unique because every person is unique. And so the if you look at um, Lulu Wang, who did The Farewell, um, mm-hmm. The Farewell was her second feature. It was only her second feature. And uh, the reason that she got to do that is because she got leveled up, just like you said. And mm. the reason she got leveled up, however, was because she was in between films, didn't know what to do, went ahead and made a short for $9,000. The short was amazing. And then when she went to uh, the festival, when she put it in a festival run, uh, that's when someone saw something in her and said, let's make a bigger film for you. And so I think the point I'm trying to make is on this third point is – it all still comes back down to a bias towards your action. Uh, if you are good at networking, if you are good at your craft, the cream will rise and someone will take a shot. You have to keep pushing and keep making. Mm-hmm. And keep, you have to keep taking yeah. shots because um, we don't know like what certain directors did or didn't do um, sure. in the moment that they had, that opportunity that they had when they were hot when they made something that was interesting for other people. So I think that's, that's um, a key factor we can't ignore. Um, but it does lead me a little bit to, into my next question too, which is um, this market. So Nashville's known for music, but we have a, a, a burgeoning film community here. Um, it dances a little bit with Austin. It dances a lot with Atlanta. Uh, sometimes it'll dance with LA and Cincinnati, but this market in general, what in in what areas can you see, let's say, improvement by the independent film community um, in supporting its filmmakers? And then on the flip side, because I don't want to make it one sided and make mm-hmm. filmmakers and creatives the victims. In, mm-hmm. in what ways can filmmakers 
better help themselves as well. So first thing I want to talk about for Nashville, which I think is fascinating. And I, I still don't know what to make of it at this point. In, in the last, I mean, since I started in 2007, universities keep adding film programs, right? So mm-hmm. Nashville has a bunch of film programs, right? You've got Belmont, Lipscomb, Watkins, MTSU, Columbia State. Uh, I'm sure I'm missing two or three. I want to say Vandy has one. Uh, maybe. I know they used to. I, I'm not sure if they do anymore. They might. But yeah, but still, uh, because Will Akers was, was running – Vandy's and then left. And I don't know if, I don't know how they're, if they replaced him or not. So, but regardless, middle Tennessee has all of these film programs, right? So, you know, all these great filmmakers piling in and people coming to Nashville from other places to make films. And I think that's fascinating. I think, I think, uh, obviously film education is a, is a double handed thing, right? So you've got the people who care deeply about film history, about, um, story craft about, uh, you know, the people who came before us, how to have that, how they always made films and what does that mean? You've got all these different things and that's one side. You've got the other side, which is production. How do you like, what are the nuts and bolts of how you make a film? What does a gaffer do? What does a key yeah. grip do, right? And these, and this is what film school, this is the, the, the thing. There's some conflict and there's some harmony between those. And, and I was a professor for two years at Belmont and I felt that, you know, I felt that. But I worked really hard because I am not an academic that is not my gift. My, what I do is I make films, <laughs> you know, I tell stories. Um, I'm, I'm pretty stinking decent at pre-production. I'm good on set. I'm good with actors. I work really well with post people. Those are the things that, that I'm good at. And so those are the things that I tried to teach. And a lot of it has to do with organization. It has to do with, um, trying to tell a good story. And what I have seen over the years in Nashville and around the world is telling a good story is really tough. It's really hard to do, to just tell a good story, a simple, good story that's going to resonate with the audience of your choice. Mm-hmm. And... I remember the first two semesters I taught at Belmont, I was brutal to my students because I went and saw the, the, the student films that were being done. And I knew that these students that I had in my class were working on these films. And I would, I would say, Hey, I saw those films you guys made. They're not good. (laughs) And if you want to be a good filmmaker, If you want to be a filmmaker, if you want to be a good filmmaker that gets paid to make films, you have to make good films. You can't just have two people sitting at a table talking. That works one or two percent of the time. I can name a couple films on one hand 
that are amazing and they're only just two people sitting at a table talking and they're three camera angles. You know, if you want to be a filmmaker, you have to understand the craft of filmmaking. You have to understand motivated camera movement. You have to understand uh, intention and conflict. There are all these things that you have to understand. And yes, you can make a great skit. Awesome. You know what? Saturday Night Live makes great skits all the time. I watch them fairly regularly, but I don't call it filmmaking. I call it a skit, mm-hmm. you know? And I think we're in this world right now where we have YouTube and we can look up everything and we can watch everything on YouTube and Vimeo and we're seeing all these short form content and it's all just kind of funny and it, 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 it hits people in this funny way or whatever, but it's not filmmaking or at least the majority of it isn't. And I, and one of my big goals as a, as a professor was to say, Hey, let's make films. Let's really think about our craft. Let's think about, are we being intentional with the camera? Are we, you know, and I even look back at my own films and I go, maybe I wasn't there. Maybe I'm not there. And I'm constantly trying to get better all of the time. I watch as much as I can to try to improve myself. I read books on filmmaking. There's this amazing book that I've recently read called, hold on, I'm going to that back. Quick pause for the book that Mark going to play from the shelf. <laughs> it's called Making Movies by Sidney Lumet. Yes, I know the mo- I know that book. It is one of the best things I have ever read when it comes to filmmaking. It is just unbelievable. And this guy made like 30 or 40 films and like really good films. And it's just amazing to hear his stories of, and the hard work, everything that you read about it, he's just putting in the work and they're all, everybody is putting in the work and the craft. And he's going through, he talks about the boring times and the exciting times and the frustrating times. And it, and it, and when you read this book, you go, Oh, okay. This is, this is making movies, not getting three friends together and getting a DSLR and hoping that the light's going to be just right between the hours of four and six and seeing if you can get your buddy to say this one line in a funny way is that, can you make something in that way? Sure. But that's not where we're trying to go, at least me. I, I want to be part of the bigger organism that's making beautifully crafted, beautifully told stories in these epic, amazing ways. Like, Chris, have you seen Parasite? Not yet. I have heard about Parasite, and I have not seen it yet. I, I will give nothing away, and when you go see it, because you have to see it in the theater, don't know anything about it going in. But the one thing I will say say about Parasite is it is a beautifully crafted, excellent – I mean it is just – it is almost flawless in the filmmaking. And there's nothing flashy about it. There's no green screen. There's nothing. It's just a classically beautiful, unreal film. And I hope it wins all the awards because we don't get films like this anymore. Yeah, I can't wait and, to see it. Oh my gosh. And I just, I can't stop thinking about it. And 
it's it's very simple and it's just beautiful and and when i see that film i'm like that's why i want to make films and i can see why people constantly turn back to the filmmakers of the 60s 70s and 80s because so many of them were just trying to they had this rhythm and style of of how they were trying to do things and they didn't care about do I have a really cool VFX CG shot every 17 seconds to wow the audience? They were like, I want to tell good stories. And my hope is, listen, I don't want to lull people. I want to be entertained. I want to go into various worlds. I love the Star Wars and the Marvel movies. I love the, the great storytelling of Pixar. But I also think as filmmakers, we need to understand why we want to move the camera. And what does that do? Uh, what what does putting this particular lens on at this particular moment do? How does that make the audience feel if you've got an 85 versus a 25? Mm-hmm. You know, these are the things that I am constantly trying to wrap my head around as a filmmaker and become and become better. You know, yeah. And, I think about because because people say that so often, it feels almost like filmmaker cliche. Like, uh, you know, are you intentional with the camera? But but it's really important because um, the way I've always thought about uh, movies when I'm looking at them and trying to dissect them and understand why something's bad, why something's good, how much craft is in this, is this hackish, is this crafty, what is it? Is I've always thought about the camera as myself. Mm. Like I'm in the movie, the camera is me. Mm. And would I have looked at that? Would I have mm. turned that way? Would I have paid attention to that? Would yeah. like, why, why am I doing what I'm doing in this movie? Like, why am I doing that? And, and usually if a movie's really great, I never notice it because it's like, yeah, I would have done all those things. Yeah. That's, that's how I would yeah. have looked at the characters. That's how I would have followed the story. And then yeah. you, when you notice it, you're like, whoa, 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 I wouldn't have done that. I wouldn't have, yeah. I wouldn't have looked down at his shoes at this moment. I wouldn't, <laughs> have, I wouldn't have zoomed in on his face uh, with my eyes and like stared at him that long. Um, I wouldn't have done that. So that's when you kind of know there's been a little bit of a misstep from a craft. I always watch a movie twice. I always watch it once for entertainment so that my heart's <laughs> in it. And then I watch it again for critique. So that right. so that I only right. use one side of my brain at a time, if possible. But but that's that's, nice. that, that's so that sounds like that's a good answer to how the filmmaker can help themselves. But I'm curious what your answer is to how the community can help uh, or, or how the community can support other independent filmmakers, whether it be from the very top levels at the Tennessee Entertainment Commission to uh, the EPs in town to the infrastructure around. Uh, our independent film houses and our festivals. What do you think? I think, I think I'm going to, I'm going to give you some possibly subvert subversive answers. (laughs) (laughs) I think first and foremost, that art is subjective, Mm -hmm. right? So, that, that's, that's the first thing I'm going to say. I'm, going to, I'm just going to put that on a shelf for a second. Second thing I'm going to say is because you're good in a room doesn't necessarily mean that you are the best at your craft. Mm-hmm. Right? Correct. So 
there are also there's this whole Hollywood thing that I've heard for many, many, many years of uh, people in Hollywood are afraid to say no, because if you say no and then the film that you said no to blows up and is one of the most amazing films ever made, people are like, I can't believe you said no to that. Mm -hmm. Right. Yeah. So people are afraid to say no. They go, well, you know, well, well, you know, I don't, I don't know. I don't know. Like, like, it's, like, let's talk maybe in a few months or whatever. Right. And so it's, it's this deferment that uh, it's deferment culture is maybe I'll call that deferment. And I've seen that a lot in my world where, and, and I will talk just personally for a second um, and then we can get back to esoteric, but personally I, I hear a lot Maki, we, we really like your films. Uh, I, I can't believe you're not working more. I can't believe you're not doing more. I want to work with you, all these things. And I'm very, very grateful for these words. They, they allow me to get out of bed in the morning and, and try again because I'm encouraged that something that I'm doing is affecting people in a positive way. And I am so thankful for that. And I want to continue to do that. On the other side, those amazing words that, that I, that are great to hear do not allow my children to go to bed with full stomachs, uh, in a house, uh, a modest house that allows them to avoid rain and cold. And, and I think it's interesting if, if people want to be full-time filmmakers, uh, we have to have support of all of these things. And I might have someone from the film commission or all these things. These are all great people. And, they, and when I see them, they're so supportive and they're so incredible and they're, they're wonderful, loving people. But at the same time, they only ha they can only do as much as they can do, right? The film commission, the Tennessee film commission, unless you have money, there's not a lot they can do for you. Once you have money, they could, there's a whole lot they can do for you. Oh, you're bringing money into the state. Great. Here's some great incentives we can give. We can do this. Let me introduce you to this. But if you don't have money, they don't have money to give you. And it's not their fault. It's just the way the system is. Um, and, and, you know, it's the same thing with, with EPs and all these things. Everybody wants to invest in a sure thing because when you spend money on something, when you pour money that really didn't come that easily to you necessarily, and you want to put it in something you want to get return on investment. And I don't know if, if all filmmakers feel this way, but I really, really take that to heart. Matter of fact, I will turn down money for short films as much as I can, because I know there's no ROI. Mm -hmm. What I want is I want to be able to make things that make people money so I can continue to make bigger and better things. So I can, so I can pay the people. Listen, Chris, my, my goal in life is to be able to pay the people who have been traveling with me for these last five, 10 plus years and have them get a really nice payday with something that we all make together. Because I just, I, I, I so love the people who come in and pour their heart and soul into the craft and do it time and time and time again. I have so many crew who will call me and say, Hey, I just want to work with you again and I'll work for free because I just want to be on set with you again. And that is the, the most loving and amazing thing 
when people say that stuff to me and I, and I, I, I cry because it's just so sweet and I love that. And, and there's, and it's so hard for me to translate that to some bigger esoteric thing because I don't, I I worked twice this year, Chris, I worked two jobs this year, two, I directed three things and I got paid for two of them. That was my year. That was my 2019. And, if and again, it some, flies by, right? Well, but at some point, that I mean, that is completely unsustainable. We've we burned through all of our savings, and now here I am at the end of this year, and I'm going, can I do this again? And exactly. does the world yes. care if I even make anything again? Because I, at some point, I have to decide maybe I should just hang it up and go do something else. Right. The pressure of the day to day, especially when you have a family and a house and all these other things, they start to weigh heavier and heavier and heavier. Now, the, the thing is, is I wonder, um, will that be the case? So, so what will be the the emotional and, and sort of um, professional ROI, if you will? So not dollars and cents, but just what is the professional ROI and the emotional ROI of this film that you have coming out that, that came out on uh, November 26th, another version of you. So that'll be really interesting to watch in 2020. Yeah. To see if, if, if that, uh, sort of unveils and, 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 uh, releases sort of, like you mentioned, a lot of magic, um, yeah. into, into your career, because I think and you're I deserving so. of it. Yeah. And I hope so, Chris. And, and what I also want is I want people to see, the beauty of the people who also came together to make that film, whether it be, you know, Micah Sims or uh, Cicely Hoffman, uh, who did Wardrobe, or uh, Ken Conrad, editor and colorist, people who just poured so much time, the actors, so many amazing actors in this thing. I want this film to be a calling card for the people who poured all of this time and effort and money and energy into this. Uh, because people barely got paid to make this film and they were so gracious and so amazing. And I want, not just for me, but for them, I want everybody to just find, find a way to get several other things made from this thing. And, and, and listen, I've been working on this film for over four years now and I believe in it. And I've gotten some beautiful text messages from friends and um, different people who just it's really resonated with and it makes me so happy. And I just want I want all of the people who poured money, time and energy into this to get some sort of ROI, whether that be the next big gig or a big payday or whatever those things are. And for myself, yeah, would I like it to to be successful? Of course, 100 percent. I would love for somebody to see and go. Hey, I'm going to hire Matki to do a X million dollar amount of film. And that's what I really would love. Um, but ultimately I, I, I want everybody to win, not just me. Yeah. No, no question about it. Is there any ass you have like um, of the independent film community here in Nashville or in Cincinnati or, or around the world where this was shot to uh, support this film at all? Like, is there anything that's not happening that you feel like should happen? It's a great question. Um, I 
I have seen a lot of people share that they've watched the film. I think one of the best ways that we can support independent films is to A, buy them or rent them, B, review them. And even if you don't love the film, find a way to find a positive spin and encourage someone that you might know to go watch it. Uh, And then see, like, if you're a champion of something, go out to the various platforms where people read reviews and go review it. Even if it's a two-sentence review. Hey, really enjoyed this film. Loved the, the blah, 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 blah. And just go out there and talk about it, you know, because because what happens is you get the the five, six, seven trolls out there who just want to say negative things about stuff. And then people go read that and they go, oh, it's the, the first thing on the list. Oh, well, it must not be a very good film. But yet there's like 30 or 40 reviews out there in various other places that they're not seeing, you know, and and part of what we have to do as independent filmmakers is find ways to support each other. And there's been tons of people in Nashville and, and around the states uh, that, have, that have supported this film, and I'm so grateful for it. And I need to find ways to support my independent filmmaking friends, and we all kind of have to do that. And as the independent filmmaking community, you know, if, if you look regionally, let's, let's just take Nashville for a second, just because, Chris, that's where you and I are currently. Um, Go find some films that are out there and go buy them and then go review them positively and then go share that with friends, Um, whether it be this film or other films that are out there that have released in the last, you know, year or two. You know, I know that uh, Adult Interference, which used to be called Wild Man, it just released a few months ago. And, um, you know, uh, my buddy Chad McLarnon just posted on social media that he bought another version of You and Adult Interference on Blu-ray. And that is huge. That is so, I mean, my heart just love, swelled up, you know? Love, love Chad for that. I saw that yeah. and and, uh, and replied to that. And I I, I definitely want to give him some more props for that too. And, and maybe even next time I see him, just buy him lunch or something. It's It was really, it's really cool. It's, it's, um, it's the way it should be done. And, and he will get, the point I think you're making is, is when you do that, you get that back in kind when your film comes out. So yeah. or when you make your film, I, I think that's key. And another thing we discovered about the algorithm. So I just want to touch on reviews quickly before we move forward sure. is yeah. that sometimes when you have a trolley review, uh, this review, that's obviously like doesn't even make sense. It's not coherent. And then it's a bad review. It doesn't really provide value to the next viewer on what they like, what was bad about it. Like they don't even say, mm-hmm. um, the key to that, and this is to all filmmakers out there in indie land and in podcast land, do not downvote it. Do not upvote it as helpful. The key to killing these things is to ignore it completely, which mm. actually turns out to be the way you kill any troll is to not mm-hmm. feed it any attention. Yeah. Because the way the algorithm works is, is if you vote and downvote it, and say, okay, this wasn't helpful, this wasn't helpful, this wasn't helpful, it will show up on the front page review because it's the review that's getting the most attention. That's the way the algorithm works. So now it's got the most votes, and, and, the, and you can filter by things, but the default filter is um, filter by um, votes on IMDb mm-hmm. specifically. So if it's filtered by votes as the default, your bad rev- review will show right up on the front page uh, mm-hmm. Because people are downvoting it and saying it wasn't helpful, so the best thing to do with a bad review is 
ignore it 100% and get everyone you know to ignore it 100%. Um, mm-hmm. So I, I stopped downvoting and uh, negative reviews. And instead, I just focus on saying good reviews were helpful. And that'll get those reviews votes up and push the other ones away. So mm-hmm. there you go. Little little note of uh, uh, hopefully a little helpful note for the filmmakers out there. Um, all said and done, though, Maki, um, it's been you mentioned four years working on it. What are you most satisfied about other versions of you? I'm sorry, another version of you. <laughs> um, you know, I've gotten some some really some heartfelt notes from people who have known me over the years and people who wouldn't just blow smoke at me. And so it's nice to see people that the film is touching, that they're, they're connecting with it. And I think my whole point in this thing was to try to make something that that would connect with people, you know, because we've all had this idea that we've all had this, uh, something didn't go right. And we think, what if I could change that? Or what if I had done something different? And I think this film explores that in, in, in a heartfelt way, in a funny way, in a, awkward way. And so I'm happy. I'm happy that the people that worked on it are proud of it. I've seen a lot of really, I've heard really a lot of really nice things about that. Um, you know, when we were at the national, the national film festival a year and a half ago and we won the audience award, um, we sold out three or four screenings. I mean, it was the only film that year that got four screenings. That was, it was pretty big. That was huge. It was. And, you know, people, I just kept hearing buzz and I kept hearing really great things. And I was kind of in this weird, surreal fog at the time, but it was, it was fun. You know, it was fun and rewarding to, to hear that it was resonating with people. And, um, I continue to hear that and that, that is encouraging. Um, I'm proud of the film. You know, we worked a lot. We tweaked, we tinkered a lot to try to get the film. We did a lot of screenings with surveys to try to figure out what was resonating with people, what wasn't. Uh, We took all of that to heart. We crafted, we recrafted, we recrafted, we shot new stuff, you know. And I'd like to think that the hard work paid off. And then in the end, we've got a film that... um, will connect with the majority of people and people will hopefully relate to one or two of the characters and say, that could be me. And where am I in the story and uh, make them think. And that's, if they do all of those things, then I think we do. Okay. That's beautiful. You've been um, so generous with your time. Maki, this is so fun. Uh, I love talking to you because we, we tend to time travel when we talk as well. Uh, mm. this has felt like 10 minutes and it's been a little bit longer than that, obviously, but, um, <laughs> to tell everybody where they can find you on uh, social media and on the internet. Sure. Yeah. Uh, if you go to Maki.net, M O T K E.net, uh, there's a link to all of my various social media out there. Uh, or you can just Google Maki, M O T K E. And, uh, you will find me. I'm, I'm one of the only, I'm one of the few Maki's out there. So, uh, yeah, it really is yeah. true. And where can people go and to buy another version of you? 
Yeah. So if you go to another version of you.com, we have a whole list of places where you can buy the film, whether you want to do Blu-ray or digital. Um, also, if you have Comcast or Time Warner or uh, AT&T U-verse or whatever your, your poison is, um, I believe it's on on demand on a bunch of those places. Or if you like a hard copy, like I've got one, uh, Amazon, Target, Walmart. No, it's not in physical stores, but you can order it from any of those places and usually have it in a few days. Absolutely true. And I have a hard copy as well, as as if I wouldn't. Uh, for those <laughs> listening that don't that don't know, uh, I'm a, one of the co-founders of Bonsai Creative who helped Maki work on this film uh, yes. and continue to and, and love doing it. Uh, one last question for you, Maki, before we wrap. Yeah. Uh, if, if Brittany Bellin were, mm. could hear you, um, well, what would you want to say to her? What would you say to her? Mm. You know, <clears throat> Through the release of this film, I've thought about Brittany quite a bit. Uh, we lost Brittany just about a year ago. Uh, she was suffering from depression and anxiety and some other things. And <clears throat> the film released almost exactly a year to the day of her taking her own life. And... So as I've been working through the release of this and working on press videos and trailers and all these different things, I can't help, you know, she, she's in every thought. She's in everything that we make. And Brittany and I, she's the only person that was in both of my feature films apart from me. I made a little cameos, but uh, she had roles in, in both of my features we worked together for many years. We've been together working on stuff since 2011. She's one of the very first people to ever read the script to another version of you. And um, I remember the day I had this thing that I did with, with Brittany, which was funny. So Brittany and I had just met in L.A. This was February of 2015. She and I had brunch together in L.A., and we were talking about the film. And, and at that point, it wasn't going to be made. We weren't sure. But she kept asking me about it. And she loved it. And she loved the character Daphne. And she made a point for me to know that I, she loved the character Daphne. And when we decided to go to Iceland and France to film the first footage, I knew. I knew that Brittany had to be Daphne. I just knew it. I mean, there was, there was no question in my brain. And I remember I was driving back from Cincinnati and I was at a rest stop in Kentucky. And I, I said, I'm going to call Brittany now. And I, I called her and I said, Brittany, I have great news. We're going to make the film. We're going to go to Iceland. We're going to go to France. We're going to film a bunch of stuff. Isn't that awesome? Aren't you so excited? <laughs> she was like, yeah. Uh, well, yeah, that's, wow. That's, that's really great. Well, I'm really happy for you. That's really, it's really exciting. <laughs> Congratulations. <laughs> I go, yeah, thank you so much, Brittany. I, I knew you'd be excited. I just thought I would let you know. She's like, yeah, wow. 
Well, thanks for calling me on a Sunday morning to let me know that you're going to make this film. And I was like, oh, hey, would you like to play Daphne? (laughs) (laughs) And, um, and she lost her mind and it was, it was beautiful. She was so excited. And, um, you know, back then we were all just paying our own way to go to Iceland and France. Uh, the film didn't have a budget. And, um, and I was like, yeah, so the only, the only catch is, you know, everybody's paying their own way. She's like, I will throw everything on a credit card right this second. You tell me when and where to be and I will be there. I love it. And, um, and so Brittany was very proud of this film. She was so proud. She, it was a little story um, we don't talk about much, but there's a, there's a very emotional scene in the film where Brittany sheds a couple tears and um, we shot it once and it, it wasn't amazing, not because of the actor, but because of the location and a few other things. And we decided we really needed to shoot it again. So we found a second location. It was right toward the end. It was like the day Brittany was supposed to leave us to go back to L.A., And, um, she found this interesting emotional core and she's, and she told me it was the first time she'd ever actually genuinely been able to tap into something emotional and shed actual human tears during a scene. Um, and she said, I was the only director that ever happened for. And that was, you know, weird as a director, but, but it was honoring because she was very vulnerable and she was not afraid to be vulnerable around me because she knew I loved her and I cared for her and I, and all I cared about was for her safety. And, um, and she was safe on my set. And so I remember the first time she watched the film, we were in LA at a screening in LA And I made sure that I sat beside her. I didn't want to sit beside anybody else. I wanted to sit beside Brittany. And I sat beside her and I just remember her squeezing my arm throughout the entire film. And just her look of how proud she was that we had made this thing. And it was special. And and I think, I think this is what she was hoping for. You know, and I don't, I don't know, you know, she saw the film premiere at the National Film Festival. She came out and I guess that was enough. I don't know. Um, It was just really heartbreaking for me and for the whole world to to lose such a bright star. And and I think um, if she were around right now, she would just be. She would be retweeting and reposting and re everything every day because that's who she was. She was going to burn as bright as everything else. And even if she, if she had 200 followers or 2 million, she, that's all she was going to talk about for a month or two because she cared so much Uh, apart from maybe like talking about some puppy rescue or, you know, giving, uh, blankets to the homeless. Cause that's what she did. She just cared with every bone in her body about people. Yep. And, and I, and I miss that. I miss it. 
Thank you for that, Maki. That was that was great, man. And um, I think that's a beautiful place and a meaningful place for us to stop on this conversation. Uh, again, go out, find Maki on the internet. You can't miss him. It's the only Maki around, Maki Dapp. Uh, and do go out and support independent film. Find another version of you. Do likewise. Uh, Blu-ray, VOD, digital, on demand. You can go and find it. Support us. You will not be disappointed. It is a really, really great movie. And to your point about her shining bright Britney, that is, um, I think, and I've said this from the beginning, that I thought she stole almost every scene she was in. And to be such a tiny little person, she had a very, very big presence uh, when she walked in the room and on screen. So, yep, agreed. Maki, I love this, man. Thank you so much for your time. And uh, next time we see each other, uh, bourbon. I love it. Thank you, Chris. You're the best. Appreciate you. You too, brother. Take care. Thanks, man. Bye. You've been listening to the Make It Podcast. To find out more information on this week's creative, including links to their projects and social media feeds, please visit our website at www.bonsai.film forward slash make it. If you haven't already, you can join our podcast community on Apple Podcasts or the podcast app of your choice by searching for Make It Bonsai Creative. If you do that, the show will pop right up. You can also follow us on Instagram and Twitter at underscore Bonsai Creative and on Facebook by searching for Bonsai Creative. And of course, if you're looking to take a big step toward your filmmaking success, go to www.bonsai.film and click on Show Me How to schedule a free discovery meeting and needs assessment. You have everything to gain. Until next time, be better, be creative, be engaged, and thank you for listening.